Our texts this morning are two, both of them from the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, an, an interesting juxtaposition, perhaps, in your mind, and hopefully I'll be able to weave it all together before the end. Starting with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 5 through 18. Now, if you remember the, the setting of Deuteronomy, this is at the end of Moses' life, and he's called the nation together, and he's speaking to them. He's about to die, and they're about to enter the promised land without him, and he's going over their history, he's, and he's also re-giving the law, deuteronomos, second law, the second telling of the law. That's why the book is named what it is. And so this is really just one long speech from Moses. And picking up in chapter 8 and verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the land, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then forward uh, just a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and picking up in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock. 
that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe which the Lord your God blesses you, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bring your book to life for us, that in the power of your spirit you would come and enter into this moment and take words that are read and spoken and explicated and bind them on the hearts of your people in whatever way you see fit. Your word is beautiful. It is powerful. It is amazing. It accomplishes what you want to accomplish in the world. It corrects, it converts, it rebukes, it exhorts, it trains in righteousness, it encourages those whose hearts are down. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would make your book live for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And as much as I love South Dakota, I love New Mexico more. I loved the mountains in the north, and I loved the deserts in the south. I grew up backpacking and hunting and skiing and fishing for trout in little streams in the mountains. But my favorite thing about New Mexico is Christmas time. Christmas in New Mexico is amazing and it's unique. It's different from anywhere else in this country. You see, New Mexico was explored and settled by the Spanish conquistadors in the 1540s. And the capital of Santa Fe was founded in 1610. And the governor's mansion, which is on the, the plaza in Santa Fe, was built in 1610. It still stands today, and it's the oldest continually occupied building in the entire United States. Uh, when New Mexico gained its, or sorry, when Mexico gained its independence from Spain, New Mexico then became uh, under the under the control of the Mexican government in 1821, and it and it became an autonomous state of the nation of Mexico. And then in 1848, we went to war with Mexico and we won, and it was ceded to the United States in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and it became a state in the United States in 1912. And as a consequence of all that rich history, it still has the highest percentage of Hispanics of any state in the United States, even California. It has the highest proportion of Native Americans, um, second only to Alaska, and it has uh, the Navajo Nation, which is, has a huge reservation that covers New Mexico and Arizona and parts of Utah and Colorado as well. Uh, there are 19 different Pueblo tribes that are federally recognized and three different Apache tribes that call New Mexico home. And so you have all of these cultures mixing together, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the population is such that no one racial group 
really dominates. And on account of that just eclectic mix of things, the place where that comes out in its most beautiful and form and most productive form is at Christmas time. And there are just special and unique things that are done at Christmas in New Mexico that aren't done any other time of year. And they are a result of the fusion of all of these cultures. And some of these practices are very old. Some of them are even ancient. And the thing I like best about it is that there are very few Chinese plastic gigaws involved in a real New Mexico Christmas. The one thing that's happened is the plastic luminarias that you plug in. I hate those things. They need to go. But I, it was just really, I, I kind of had this, like this bitter hate-love relationship with Christmas in my 20s and 30s. And it took me a while to figure out why. It was because when I left New Mexico, I left all these beautiful things behind. And frankly, some of the, some of the Christmas stuff just looks cheap and tacky and ugly. And my, my mother-in-law has this plastic Santa with a, a proximity sensor that she hangs in the bathroom. And you go in the bathroom in the dark, and this thing starts ho-ho-hoing and singing jingle bells at the top of its lungs. You almost wet your pants right there. I hate that thing, you know? I just... I hate it. I hate it all. I hate plastic stuff. I hate imitations. And, uh, and so we just didn't have that when I was growing up. We, we would always go to the mountains, and we would always cut our own Christmas trees in the mountains each year. And usually we did not cut spruce or fir trees. Uh, we usually cut pinon trees, which is a subspecies of pine. And so a proper New Mexico Christmas tree is a pinon tree. And their shape is different from the standard Christmas tree shape, but that's okay. We don't mind. And there's a traditional dish. It's a stew called pozole. And it's made of pork and green and red chilies and, and this special large kernel corn called pozole that's dried and preserved in slaked lime. And then when you make the soup, it's all hot, and you put fresh vegetables on top of the soup just when, you, just when you're ready to serve it, usually some shredded cabbage and, and some sliced radishes and a little bit of lime juice. And you always eat pozole around Christmas time. I can remember even when I was working in the grocery store, the, the Hispanic workers would come and they would bring big pots of pozole and just leave them in the break room for everybody to eat because it's Christmas in New Mexico and you're going to have pozole. And then there's tamales, really good tamales. They're a lot of trouble. And these wonderful little cookies called bizcochitos. That's the, actually the state cookie. Apparently the state cookie of Ohio is the sugar cookie. You could get more generic than that. I don't know how, but New Mexico has bizcochitos. That's our, our state cookie. And the houses are decorated with ristras of red chilies that are drying because the chili harvest happened in September and you, you hang those chilies to dry when they're green and they turn red. And, and that's, the, that's how you cook through the winter as you pull the chilies off the ristra. And then on Christmas Eve, there's an old, old Spanish tradition going back to colonial times. And there was this understanding, this, this tradition that the Christ child goes from house to house, visiting each family on Christmas Eve and blessing them. And in order to, to light the way of the Christ child, they would make these signal fires called luminarias. And they're lit in the front of each home. And then they would have paper bags with candles in them called farolitos that, that line the pathways of the house. 
And in many small towns in northern New Mexico, not only do you get the Christ child going from house to house, your neighbors go from house to house on Christmas Eve. And you invite them in and you have a hot drink and a biscochito and you, you wish them Feliz Navidad y Prospero Año Nuevo. And everyone puts out these ferrolitos. They call them luminarias. It's gotten confused. But they, everyone in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe and all these other places, they put out these ferrolitos. And the whole town is lit. And one of the most popular things to do is to go on a bus tour of all of the ferrolitos all over the place. Old Town, New Mexico. Just all the neighborhoods. It's wonderful. And life as it is usually lived just stopped. And special things were done as an act of celebration, not only with one's families, but also with one's friends, also with one's neighbors. It was a whole community event. And I can honestly say that even as a child, I looked forward to Christmas Eve as much as Christmas Day and the presents under the tree. Now, I want to I issue an invitation to you. My wife and I are opening our home on Saturday, December 11th from 5 to 9, and we're inviting you to come into our home and, and just spend some time, and I'm going to make pozole, and uh, you can have a hot drink and maybe a bizcochito or a tamale, and you will be guided to our door by a luminaria and ferritos. Now, perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems as though it's harder and harder for modern Americans to really celebrate, to come together with great joy and do things that are special and unique and are only done at that time of year and to enjoy the process of the preparations rather than be stressed and angry about them and to find pleasure in spending sacred hours with our families and our neighbors and our friends and to find great joy in the rituals and traditions. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think we're losing something. And perhaps even in some ways we've already lost it. The lives of the ancient Israelites were all structured around the rhythms of sacred time and sacred space. The whole life of the ancient Israelites was infused with an understanding that God had commanded certain times and seasons to be set aside for certain things and that those times were holy. They were dedicated to God. And God met with his people in a special way during those times, starting with the Sabbath and then with the feasts and the festivals that the Lord had commanded. And the Lord had also commanded that certain spaces were holy. Certain locations were holy. And he talks in here in Deuteronomy, anticipating Jerusalem being the place where God's temple would be built and it would be the city where his name dwelt. And he, and he says, there will be a sacred space, a sacred location, and you are to go to that place. And you're to set aside everything else and go to that place and just be with your Lord. And worship your Lord. Yes, he's around you every day, all the time. But in this place, he's going to manifest himself and his presence in a special way. There were special days. There were the high holy days. And there were special places, the tabernacle and later the temple. And in the ancient Israelite calendar, three times a year, 
the ancient Israelites had to stop whatever they were doing and travel to Jerusalem. And there they would worship and make offerings and sacrifices. And they were always occasions of great, great joy. And they were instructed to go to Jerusalem uh, during those three times. But it's interesting, the, the one time of year that wasn't a celebration of great joy was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They didn't go to Jerusalem for Yom Kippur. They stayed at home and they fasted and they repented and they mourned for their sins when the priest made the sacrifice at the altar each year for their sins. So the times that they went to Jerusalem were not times of mourning and repentance. They were always times of celebration. And three times a year they went to Jerusalem to celebrate. The first feast that God had commanded was the Feast of Passover to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And that, of course, um, commemorated the night when the angel of death passed through Egypt and killed all of the firstborn as God's final act of judgment. But, but those who had the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, the angel passed over. And in that night they ate bread that was unleavened because it was the bread of haste. They were on their way out of Egypt that night and they had to eat the lamb that they had slaughtered to put the blood on the doorpost and they had to eat all of it. And if they couldn't eat it all, they had to burn up what was left. They weren't allowed to leave any for anybody else to eat or even mice or animals or anything like that. They had to eat it all. And then they fled Egypt. So they would gather each year to remember God's rescue of his people. And then the next feast was the, the Feast of Weeks. And according to, to Deuteronomy, that took place seven weeks after the sickle is put to the standing grain. And it's a harvest celebration. It later became known as Pentecost. And then there was the Feast of Booths, or of Tabernacles. And this one was a seven-day-long feast after the harvest of their summer fruits, the olives and the grapes and the figs. And they would have been required to go to Jerusalem in about March, April for Passover, in June for Pentecost, and in September, October for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. We find all of this in Deuteronomy 16. You can read it for your homework if you want. And then we have this event that's described for us in Deuteronomy 14. It's not clear if the bringing of the tithe described in Deuteronomy 14 is part of the observance of the feast or booths, of booths rather, or if it represents a fourth journey to Jerusalem on at least every third year. You see, one year they were to take the tithe and they were to put it in the town where they dwelt. They were to store it there, to bring it together as sort of a, a food bank for the poor and the widow and the sojourner. One year, it was to be given to the Levites because the Levites owned no land on which to grow crops. And then one year, they took it to Jerusalem and feasted. It may have been that way, or it may have been that each year they took a portion of the tithe to Jerusalem to, to feast on it. And then they took the other portions and they put it in the food bank and they gave it to the Levites. Some things are not clear. Even the Jews themselves are not in agreement from ancient times. Um, about uh, these things. But there are some things that are very clear. At each of these feasts, as it is described in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord does something interesting. The Lord commands his people to rejoice 
to, he commands them to rejoice in their labor, and he commands them to rejoice in the fruits of their labor. And they were to go up to the holy city with these offerings, and they were to do it with gratitude in their hearts, with their attention focused on the goodness of God and the blessings that he had bestowed upon them. Now, I want you to think about something for just a minute. God commands his people to be filled with joy. It's something that he commands both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for instance, in Deuteronomy 16, it says, You shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 16, 10, and 11. A little later on, he says, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town. And for seven days, you shall keep this feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord your God will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and in all of the work of your hands, so that you will be all together joyful. And then in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, or could be translated reasonableness, or kindness, or spirit of consideration. It's a, the idea of a generosity of spirit that doesn't insist on exercising your rights or exacting everything required by the rules and getting your own way. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the idea that God commands his people to be filled with joy might seem odd to you. And the corollary, that joylessness is a sin, and a serious sin at that, may seem baffling or even offensive to you, but that's because you do not understand what joy actually is. Now, I'm sure your teenagers were not like this, and I'm sure my teenagers would never be like this, but you know the theoretical teenagers out there who, who have... You know, they, they come in to, to sit down at the table and they look all depressed and mopey. And, and it's for absolutely no valid reason, you know? They think their lives are so hard. And, and you just want to kind of smack them in the back of the head a little bit uh, to help them snap out of it. You, you want to tell them that, hey, your life is actually really good and you're blessed. You have parents who love you. You have food and clothing and a nice house to live in. You're, you're going to get an education. You're going to school. You, if you're sick, you can get health care. You have an iPhone. You have a car to drive when you turn 16. You'll be able to go to college if you can get the grades to get admitted. Look at all the advantages you have. Look at how hard other people's lives are in other places around the world. You should be grateful. You should be filled with contentment. You should count yourself as blessed. Your life is not bad. Yes, it is. It's awful. Like I said, my kids would never do that. But is that analogous to God commanding us to be joyful always? Yes, it is. 
You see, Christian joy is not primarily an emotional state. Christian joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that is rooted in the fact that you are walking with Christ in his kingdom right now in this world, and he's looking out for you, and all of his resources are available to you, and nothing can happen to you that God will not redeem and turn into a blessing, that God will rescue you from what you cannot bear, or he will provide the power for you to bear which you do not think you can bear. That's what joy is. That's why Christian joy can and should be experienced even in terrible circumstances. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he and his companions were, quote, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Christian joy is a recognition that under God, everything is okay. Even if it doesn't look okay, even if it doesn't feel okay at the moment. Christian joy is the sense that everything is okay, that you are secure in the knowledge that God is right here and he is therefore with you and working in you and through him you are able to transcend all of life's circumstances. Now, I I don't want you necessarily to dig out your Bible and look at Philippians 4, but just Many of us know that verse very well. Many of us have memorized that passage. But notice the progression that Paul gives in Philippians 4. He commands them to rejoice or to be walking in the joy of the Lord always. And then he says, I'm going to tell you again. So I'm repeating myself here. I mean it. Rejoice always. And then he says, when you're doing that, you will realize that you can afford to be gentle and not insist on your rights or getting your own way all the time. And men will see that and find it to be attractive. They will see that you are free from the burden of having to have your own way. And then he says, you will be therefore very confident that the Lord is at hand. He is nearby, always. He's right beside you. He's walking with you. He's acutely aware of everything that's going on. And therefore, the logical response to that will be to lay aside all anxiety about everything and just to seek the Lord's care in prayer with gratitude for all that he has done and all that he will do. And if you do that, Paul says, your life will be one where you walk in a state of profound peace. The peace of Christ will guard your heart and your mind. Your thinking will be calm and well-ordered and take God into account. And your emotions will be profoundly positive because you're immersed in the presence of the Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord calls us to rejoice because rejoicing is the only reasonable way to live when you know God. And to fail to rejoice is a sin precisely because it impugns God's character, it impugns his goodness, it impugns his power, it it impugns his promises, it ignores his revelation, it disobeys his direct orders. It's basically to live as though God is not actually there or can't actually be trusted. And God takes a dim view of that. And you can kind of see why. 
I mean, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He rescued you from a well-deserved damnation at the horrible expense of the suffering and death of his only begotten son. He has made you heirs with his son of every created thing. He promises to glorify you and let you rule a restored universe with him together. I mean, what more does he have to do to prove his goodwill towards you? But the Lord knows our frame, and he remembers that we are only dust. So look at what he does, or rather, look at what he did for his chosen ones under the old covenant. The children of Israel were to take the tithe of their grain and their olives and their grapes and their wine and the flocks and the herds, and they were to travel to Jerusalem and then throw a party for themselves and their families and their friends and strangers who lived among them who weren't even Jewish in the presence of the Lord. And God's blessing, if it was too great so that they couldn't transport that tithe, or the distance was too far to carry it, then he told them, okay, sell it at home and carry the money to Jerusalem, and then listen to this, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong fermented drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. Can you believe that's in the Bible? Take the tithe, which is the Lord's, and go throw yourself a party with it. And, and go get a porterhouse steak and, and a nice rack of lamb and some hot buttery French bread, if that's what you want. And, uh, and then, you know, there are other things that you might want as well that you can have. Go buy a case of Sam Adams. Go get a bunch of bottles of really good Merlot or that Beaujolais Nouveau that just came out. Maybe have a good single malt scotch whiskey and bring it to church and have the best potluck ever. Dance, sing, eat, drink, laugh, be grateful to the Lord for all that he has done. Now, let me just draw something out and make a point here that needs to be made. Alcohol is God's idea. Alcohol, according to the Bible, is God's good gift to man. He made it and gave it to make our hearts merry. The Bible says that. Uh, open your Bible, if you will, to, to Psalm 104 and verse 14. It just says it as plain as the nose on your face. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. This, the psalmist is extolling God's works, and he says, you, call, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and bread to strengthen his heart and oil to make his face shine. It says something very similar in Judges 9.13. It actually says in Judges 9.13 that wine makes the heart of man merry and the heart of God merry. You see, Christianity is not a teetotaling religion. That's Islam. And there are dozens of passages in the Old Testament that number wine among the blessings of the Lord and that describe being without wine 
uh, as repeatedly being associated with the curse or the judgment of God. Jesus' first miracle at Cana was to make over 120 gallons of really good wine to keep a party going. The beverage that was served at the Last Supper was wine, it wasn't grape juice. Paul commanded Timothy to stop drinking water only, but to drink wine as well to settle his stomach. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two eighteen that he will drink wine with us when the kingdom of God fully arrives on earth. Alcohol is God's good gift. And it's a great sin to call good things evil and evil things good. I think, frankly, that we should be using wine in communion here, as was the practice of the whole church, until a crank dentist named Thomas Bramwell Welch figured out how to pasteurize grape juice. And uh, that was 1868. Welch was a communion steward in his local Methodist church, and the Methodists taught that abstaining from alcohol was necessary for sanctification. And it drove Welch crazy that the Methodists taught that and then used wine in the worship of the Lord in communion. And rather than reevaluate the Methodist teaching in light of the Bible, he figured out how to overturn the commandment of Christ. Later on, when he became rich, peddling Welch's grape juice, he actually bribed churches to switch from wine to his grape juice. Now, in the 19th century, when this was all being debated, a Presbyterian theologian named Hodge said this, the use of wine is precisely what is commanded by Christ in his example and his authoritative institution of this holy ordinance. Whoever puts away true and real wine or fermented grape juice on moral grounds from the Lord's Supper sets himself up as more moral than the Son of God who reigns over his conscience and then the Savior of souls who redeemed him. There has been absolutely universal consent on this subject in the Christian church until modern times when the practice has been opposed not upon change of evidence, but solely on prudential reasons. You see, we don't have any permission from God to alter his commanded worship, period. Now I know that alcohol can be abused and is abused. And if you are an alcoholic, if you are in recovery, it's not for you. You're not to drink anymore, period. Because for you, it's a sin. But, but that doesn't mean the rest of us should worry that much about it. I mean, I can't have eggs and I can't have milk. They're very bad for me. But I wouldn't want to stand around and keep you from having cheese and scrambled eggs and things like that. That would just be wrong. And from time to time, people do that, you know, they, like, they offer me food on, this week, you know, and it's like, no, nope, can't have that, that's got milk in it, no, nope, that's got eggs in it, no, nope, can't have that, cheese in it, da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and everybody was like, huh. And you could tell they felt a little bit guilty eating something that I couldn't eat. I was like, don't. Just enjoy the food that God gave you. It's just there's something wrong with me, and I can't handle it. Well, it's the same thing with alcohol. It's the same thing with many other things. You can enjoy alcohol or abstain from it as you wish, just as you might choose to eat sugar or not, or to eat meat or not, or to drink the chemistry experiments known as diet soda or not. It's not a moral issue unless you get drunk, and then it is, and it's a serious moral issue. And I guess I should add that since there are people here under the age of 21, it is also a moral issue if you're under 21. 
But that's not because there's something wrong with wine. That's because the laws of the state of Ohio say that you shall not do it. So it's a violation of the fifth commandment. It's not a problem with wine. We have to obey the lawful authorities, and we must do whatever they say unless they forbid that which God has commanded or command that which God has forbidden. And then we rebel with all of our might against them. Now, why does God command this great tithe-subsidized party? He says why in Deuteronomy 14 and verse 23. He says that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now, isn't that interesting? You are to take the tithe and you are to throw a feast for yourselves with it before the Lord. You are to rejoice before the Lord so that you can learn to fear him always. What in the world is that all about? How will a joy-filled party teach them to fear the Lord? Well, it will teach them to fear the Lord in this way. It will be a regular reminder that the rich blessings that they enjoy and the wealth and the prosperity that were theirs in the land were a blessing and a gift from Almighty God. And their continued blessing and prosperity were dependent on God's continued kindness towards them, which was not absolute. It was conditional. It was given to them on the condition that they walked with the Lord in humble obedience, and if they did not walk in humble obedience, all of that blessing would evaporate. It would just disappear. And this is a principle that's found in the whole of Scripture, isn't it? Jesus says much the same thing. He, he says, don't worry about where food and clothing and the things you need will come from. Don't seek those as your main preoccupation in life. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then everything you need will be added to you. But the corollary is, if you don't continually seek the kingdom and his righteousness, you are not promised the things that you need. You shouldn't presume that you'll get them. You're choosing to live then as the pagans live, and you shall have the pagans' outcomes. And your life will be one of anxiety, of attempted self-sufficiency. You will live and die apart from God's grace and provision. When things go well, you'll swell with pride and say, look at what I did. And when things go poorly, you will be utterly undone. And that's the message of Deuteronomy 8, the first passage we read this morning, isn't it? God's giving you all of this, and he's giving you the ability to get wealth. And when you get rich, and when you're full and fat and happy, don't sit around and go, I am really pretty amazing. Look at everything I've done. Look at the, the work of my hand. I did that. God says, the minute that happens, you're on a bad path. And you're starting to forget me. And you're starting to forget that I'm the one who gives you the ability to get wealth. I'm the one who feeds you. I'm the one who multiplies your flocks. And they lost their confidence in him over and over again. Do you know why they were constantly tempted to worship Baal and the gods of the other nations around them? Because they thought God was kind of a, a, a limited God. He was... He was El Shaddai, God of the mountains, literally, God of the high places. And, uh, and if you've got a farm down here on the plain, well, he, he might not, that might not be in his territory. And who is the one that covers, you know, 
the, the plain and the farming. And who's, who's the one who brings the rain? Well, the Canaanites are doing pretty well. They're pretty rich and successful. And they say it's Baal, the storm god. Well, we won't, we won't stop worshiping the living God, but we'll just hedge our bets by worshiping Baal. Just to make sure the flocks and the herds are productive and the fields of grain are productive and the rains come in a timely we'll, we'll worship Baal because, you know, that's his, that's his wheelhouse. That's where he's the expert. You, you want a specialist. You know, you don't want a general practitioner in these things. You want a specialist, and Baal is a specialist. So we'll just worship Baal a little bit on the side. And God over and over again said, no, I'm the one. I'm the God above all the gods. I'm the one who brings the rain or shuts the clouds. And if you know your Bible, you know the story of Elijah. And what did Elijah do? What was the great miracle of Elijah's life? By my word, there shall be no dew or rain for seven years. And God shut the skies. And, and then at the end of that time, when everybody's really thirsty and really poor and really hungry, he says, now let's have a showdown with Baal and his priests. You go ahead and put a sacrifice over here, and I'll put a sacrifice over here, and the one who answers with fire from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, that's the real God. So go ahead. And there were like a hundred prophets of Baal, and they started doing their Baal thing, and it didn't work. And they're dancing and shouting and carrying on, and they're cutting themselves, hoping that the sight of the blood will, will get Baal excited, and nothing happens. And Elijah stands over there, and he's like, cry louder. He's a God. He, he's kind of far away. Maybe he can't hear you. Cry louder. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on the john. That's literally in the Hebrew. Maybe he's, maybe he's on the john, you know? And, and so cry louder, and nothing happens. And then Elijah goes, and he puts his sacrifice on the altar. And he, he orders them to dig a trench around the altar, and then he orders them to pour water on the sacrifice over and over again. And then he says a simple, quiet prayer. And from heaven comes lightning and consumes the sacrifice. And do you remember the question at the beginning? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal be God, follow him. Who's the real God? And when that lightning came out of the sky and consumed that sacrifice, what did the people do? They cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they killed all the prophets of Baal right there. And then God sent the rain prove that he was God. Well, that's what happens when our hearts get fat and happy. We start drifting away from the living God. We start either thinking that we're pretty special and powerful because all this blessing is ours. And then we start looking to secondary causes. Maybe we don't look to Baal. Maybe we look to headhunters or business planners. Maybe, maybe we look to stock market analysts and other experts trying to juice the, the thing up like we need it to juice, and we never turn to the living God. Now, we stand together on this Lord's Day on the cusp of the most beautiful, the most wonderful celebrations that are culturally available to us. This Thursday, we will feast together with friends and families to show our gratitude to God for the kindness that he showed to our nation from its earliest days. If you know the story of that, of that time and those people, 
God arranged it so that they were blown off course. They landed somewhere they didn't intend to land, and they landed in the proximity of the only two Native Americans that spoke English on the whole continent. And those men got those colonists through their first winter. And it was a horrible and a costly winter, and they showed them how to farm this land and to use the resources. God brought them there and then gave them these two men to help them. God has not judged us as our sins deserve. He has provided richly for us here. It is fashionable today to point out the many systemic evils that mark our history, and I do not want to negate or deny any of those evils. I want to simply ask a basic question. Can you please point to any nation under the sun in all of human history that did it any better? All of them were much, much worse at points than we were. And we, at least, are capable of self-reflective criticism and change, however imperfect and sloppy that process is. And then I would like to ask a second question. Are you willing to look at the nations that were controlled by the ideology that you hold? Because they were horrible, horrible places that slaughtered their own people by the hundreds of millions. What makes you think that you would do any better if you were given the reins of power? The failure rate of your ideology is 100%. By all means, let us repent, but let us also celebrate before the Lord and learn to fear him. And then next comes Advent, and for four weeks, we prepare our hearts And we long for the the great feast of the nativity, Christmas, where we rejoice in the goodness of God in sending us a savior in human flesh. Let this be a season where we engage thoughtfully and joyously in the discipline of celebration. Don't let our family squabbles and and the stressful temper and anxiety-fueled preparations and the commercialism and the materialism and supply chain snafus, don't let all that distract and ruin. Determine instead that you will rejoice before the Lord. You and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the widow and the orphan, and the alien, and the stranger within your gates. And rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, because everything is okay. And then celebrate the new year. Another year to walk with Jesus, the King, in his kingdom. And to face with him whatever God has ordained for that year, confident that he will provide and trust him and be filled with joy. Amen.